Good morning, church. This is Jacob coming to you from Leah and Lucy's bedroom. And uh, the reason I'm here and not with you in person is because some of our kiddos woke up this morning with sore throats and they weren't feeling well. And we thought, uh-oh, is this something? Is this nothing? Is it going to get worse? Is it going to get better? We decided just to be safe, we're going to all stay home. So I'm disappointed that I can't be there in person with you right now, but I'm excited that I still get to bring this last message in our series, Feedback, through the Old Testament book of Amos. And I want to begin this morning with what ended up happening with Israel. We've been hearing God's words delivered through the prophet, or as we said last week, the non-prophet Amos, and we found that there's some harsh things that are coming for Israel. And we said that they did. And even Israel's histories record what happened and why it happened. So I want to begin by having you listen to an account, Israel's own account of what happened after their unfaithfulness to the Lord. This is from 2 Kings chapter 17. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah and goes in on the Haber River and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt under the power of Pharaoh. They worshipped other gods. They followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. And at every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God were. They rejected his decrees and the covenant that he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them to do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. And so the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord, their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel and he afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. And when he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, son of Naboth, their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit great sin. 
The Israelites persisted in all their sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence, as he had warned through all his servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. So by the time God sends Amos to Israel, it's already too late. Amos's message is not the same as the message of Jonah or John the Baptist or Jesus. The message that God sends and says, tell them to repent, tell them to change. There might still be hope for my people. It's not like that. It's you had your chance. And now you get to hear what God is going to do, what is going to be allowed to happen to you. And then, as we read in 2 Kings, it happens. And it's as terrible as it sounded. And at this point, we have to stop. Again, we need to do this more often. We need to stop and explain a little bit. Because the question that's going to come up in the minds of believers, and especially of unbelievers, is if God is such a loving parent, why would he allow this to happen to his children? And that could be its own sermon series. That could be a long conversation. That could be your whole study of the nature and the character of God. But it helps to give explanations, even if they're not going to be 100% satisfying. But here's just a couple. One, a loving parent disciplines their child. Have you ever seen a parent who starts to discipline their child or makes out like they're going to discipline their child, but then doesn't actually follow through? If you hit your sister one more time, it's no screens for a week. Don't test me. And then the child hits their sister one more time and the parent goes, I mean, I tried. I can't actually take away their screen for a week. They love the screen and you know, it's a nice break for me. That doesn't work. Children don't learn that the consequences of bad choices in the controlled environment of the home, then they're going to be sent out into the world where they have to learn the consequences for bad choices in the harsh environment without boundaries of parents and home and people who love them. I should maybe step off my soapbox now. That was a little bit of a, a little bit of preachiness from the preacher. But the point is, a loving parent disciplines their child. This is what we see between God and Israel. The second thing to keep in mind is that if God is genuinely loving, then God has to oppose evil. Evil is something that we take too lightly often. Evil is something that opposes God's good creation and threatens God and his good, God's good creation. And we need to remind ourselves that God is like a mama bear because God is this loving parent. If you get anywhere near the baby bear, you're going to find out that that mama bear has claws. And you just better watch out because you might get cut. When it comes to God's view on evil and God's whole plan to eliminate evil from the world eventually... I've used this illustration before, and I'll show you a quick little version of it here in the bedroom again. I've used the illustration of a balloon. Balloons are fun, and they float around, and we go, oh, look at that, it's purple, it's shiny, wonderful. I like this balloon. I think I want to I wanna play with this balloon. I want to maybe keep it for myself. But God has said, ah, that's not what you think. It's not going to be good for you. I want you to stay away from this kind of thing. And we go, oh, it seems fine. It's fun. It's harmless. Oh, come on, God. But here's why. Because God is opposed to evil, God is going to eliminate evil. Eventually, God is going to take all 
of the evil in the world and he is going to destroy it. And you don't want to be anywhere near it when that happens. So what happens if you're playing with evil? You're cozying up to evil. That punishment, that that justice of the Lord's is coming. And if it hits, comes your way, you might get popped or poked or... Anyway, that's the balloon illustration. Maybe it works. Maybe it helps you. Maybe it doesn't. But here's what happened with Israel. They cozied up with evil and they needed discipline. And what we read about, the result was kind of what they got. And Amos tells Israel what God was going to do. And as we've studied through, we've noticed that it's mostly negative. It's mostly unpleasant stuff. But then we get to the very end of Amos. That's what I want us to, to soak up today. That's what I want us to acknowledge and, and something that will help us gain hope and to look forward to this future that God calls his people to. The last few verses of Amos are positive and hopeful things that God is also going to do with Israel. Listen to what Amos says. Amos 9, 11 through 15, the last verses of the book. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it at last as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So it's not all bad news. It's not all what's going to happen is going to be awful, but that's definitely there. But there's this note of hope. Here, a vision is cast for a time when Israel's desire for peace and prosperity and God's desire for justice and righteousness will finally align. And yes, there's going to be a time of destruction. There's going to be a time of loss, but there's also going to be a time of restoration. The verse says the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. That means that the, the land is going to produce so much that even by the time when you're harvesting, the, the guy who's sowing seeds is going to have to come and do that because the land is so fertile and it's so good and things are going to be so right when God's justice is done and God is with his people once again. And just like our balloon illustration, it's a day of celebration for some because we say, yay, there's not going to be any more evil in the world. There's not going to be any more pain or suffering. But on that same day, it's going to be bad news for other people who have cozied up with evil because they are going to be impacted by its destruction. They're going to be on the receiving end of it. And Israel always assumed that they were going to be on the celebration side of the day of the Lord. And that's a phrase that comes up a lot in the prophets. You may notice that on that day or in that day or the day of the Lord. Everybody knew what that meant. That was going to be the Lord's restoration, that he's moving his broken creation toward. But Israel said, I, we can't wait for that day. It's going to be a great day. And one thing that Amos said back in chapter five is, why do you want the day of the Lord? You think you're going to be part of the celebrating group, but you're actually going to be part of the group that is sad because they've been cozying with evil. They're going to see destruction. It's going to be a bad day for you guys. Amos chapter five 
verses 18 through 20. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and then only to meet a bear. Though he entered a house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness? So while 97% of the book of Amos is about destruction, the last little bit is this hopeful glimpse toward the future when God will restore and repair and rebuild. And when Israel hears this, and when we hear this, our, our natural first question is, when is that going to happen? We want to know when that day is going to be. Is it tomorrow? Is it soon? Is it a long way off? Will we see it in our lifetime? Or maybe it's already happened. Maybe it was the, the remnant who got to return back from exile and, and go rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. Was that the day of the Lord? Uh, was it when Jesus came, when he was born, when Jesus started his adult ministry? Was it when he was raised from the dead? Is it a time in the future that we haven't seen yet? Is it during the time of the resurrection that Jesus promised that we will be raised up just like he was raised up? We want to know the answer to this question so badly and it's completely understandable. But it's frustrating. And scripture, a lot of the times in general, is frustrating in the same way. is because sometimes the Bible's goal is to tell us that something happened or will happen rather than giving us all the details about how or when it's going to happen. But that's the, that's the information that we want. And this insatiable need that we have to know exactly what and when and how and all the details, it kind of, it can be a problem. It's kind of the reason that we end up treating scripture like a coded message sometimes. Like, oh, if we just decipher it and then we can figure it out and then we can be prepared. And ah. Jesus says, yes, you should be prepared, but no, you should not worry about the day and the time. You should just be ready. Live your life faithfully. In a couple weeks, we're going to study the book of Revelation. And that's that's a prime scripture that people want to use to say, oh, okay, well, this represents this. And oh, this is like these world events. And oh, therefore, I've calculated the time of the coming of the Lord. I've calculated this on that day, date, and time. Wouldn't you like to know? Come and follow me and I'll tell you. And Jesus says, ah, don't mess with that. The end of Amos reminds us that God is a restorer that God sees the big picture. He's working on Israel and he's working on us. He's working on his entire creation and he's moving us all toward this time when he once again gets to live hand in hand with his people. And we get to move in step perfectly with God's own will. Do you remember when we said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? That if you see Jesus, you see God. Well, in the same way, when we see Jesus, we kind of get a glimpse of this day, this coming day of the Lord and this restoration that God has planned. Sometimes we just think of Jesus's miracles as a, like a publicity stunt. Oh, wow, he did this amazing thing. He's going to get all these new followers. His mega church is going to thrive. But they were more than just that. Jesus's miracles, his, his power over nature, his ability to heal people and bring instant restoration. These were a glimpse of that restored creation, that, that new creation that is coming where God overcomes sickness and blindness and demon possession and storms and even death, where they are no longer going to be the threat 
that they are to us right now. Jesus himself and his miracles and his teachings, they're all little tastes of the new creation that God is moving his creation toward. Sometimes when I'm cooking, like if I'm making a, a tri-tip or something, I realize, man, to get this right, it takes time. So I, I trim the fat, I gotta let the meat marinate maybe, or if I do a nice dry rub, I gotta put that together and then just kind of let it soak in. And then you cook it, you gotta cook it low and slow, and then you wait for the time to take it out. And then as soon as you take it off, off the heat, it's still not ready. You still have to wait, you gotta let the meat rest. But then you finally get to that point where you can start to slice it. So if I'm slicing tri-tip, I'll have a little taste. And most of the time I go, oh, this is so good. And you know what I do? I can't help it. I go, Molly, come here, get in here, get in here. And I cut off a little piece for her. Maybe it's that little end piece, oh, with all the flavor and the crispy. She eats it. She says the same thing every time. Oh, this is so good. Can I have some more? And I go, no, 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 you gotta wait. I still, we gotta set the table, wait for everybody else. I'd love to give you more, but this is just a taste. This is just a glimpse. Well, Jesus' life and his commission for his followers, for the church to live like him. They're like this wonderful taste of God's restored kingdom. This is not Israel's restored kingdom with, with a king like Jeroboam on the throne. This is not America's restored kingdom. This is not even Tri-Valley's restored kingdom, restoring and bringing back the glory days. This is God's restored kingdom where Jesus Christ is king and where the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, is fully realized. And we can try to pinpoint the day and the time of when that kingdom will arrive, or we can just dream about it and hope for it and long for it and, oh, just think about how good it's going to be when all of our present struggles and troubles are over. Or, and this is what I think we should do, we can call people into the kitchen and we can say, you gotta try this. You gotta get a taste of this. Yes, that feast, that meal, it's coming. You're gonna tuck into the table and it's gonna be fantastic, but man, I can't wait. I don't want you to have to wait. You get to taste it now. And hopefully you know by now that we're not just talking about tri-tip. We're talking about the love of God that we have discovered in Jesus Christ. It is too good not to share. It is too good not, it's too good to just wait around for. A quote that I've shared with you before, and I'll probably share again because I think it sums up the mission of the church so well, is from N.T. Wright. And he says this, love is the language that people will speak in the new creation, and we get to learn it now. We don't have to wait until we get there. We can start today. We can give people that taste, that glimpse of what God's kingdom that is coming is going to be like. Some people have told me at Tri-Valley that Tri-Valley used to be the kind of place where people would experience that kind of love. And I'm not making any comment now about whether or not it still is, but what I hear a lot is that Tri-Valley definitely used to be the kind of place where the language of new creation was spoken, where folks were quick to share the good news about Jesus' love with their friends and their neighbors, and there were, there were new faces, new people, new families, joining the church all the time. People loved getting together. They loved gathering outside of Sunday morning for meals and work projects and just doing life together. In the last few weeks, we've been doing some interview questions. We've been asking people from the church to say, hey, tell us about your positive experience in the church or your hope for the future of Tri-Valley as a thriving congregation. And I've heard a lot of your past experience about 
times when the church was vibrant and life-giving and you really, really sensed it was that taste, that glimpse, a preview of the new creation that God has in store. And one common theme that I noticed through all the different stories and all the different responses to the questions I heard was togetherness, doing things together with a purpose, whether it was fixing buses together or teaching kids classes together or eating meals together, scrubbing toilets together, launching pumpkins together, traveling together. The theme was togetherness, connectedness through common tasks and goals and efforts and meetings and programs in the church. The, The togetherness was there. As we read Amos, we can see very clearly that Israel's together was broken. They're together with God was broken. They're together with their neighbors was broken. They're together with the poor and the needy among them was broken. Even they're together with each other was broken. And the kingdom split after all. And to, to avoid a war, I was like, okay, I'll let you have two different kingdoms. This is not ideal, but it's the lesser of two evils. They're together was broken. And Israel mistakenly believed what some people still believe about relationships today. And that is that the purpose of every relationship is to get me more of what I want. I had a friend in college who told me a story about when she was 14 years old, she went to her dad and she said, dad, I think I'm old enough to start dating boys. And her dad said, well, I disagree. I think you're too young and I think you're too naive to start dating. And she said, no, I'm not. He said, well, let me ask you a question. Why do you think a boy wants to date you anyway? And she looked at him and with all sincerity, she said, so that he can buy me things. (laughs) That's why a 14 year old boy wants to have a relationship with you because he needs someone to buy stuff for. I got all this money and no one to shop for. I just, I need a girlfriend I can buy things for. And the dad said, that answer tells me that you're too young and too naive to start dating. So the answer is no. This girl's together was broken because she thought that the whole purpose of a relationship was for her to get more of the stuff that she already wanted. And Israel's together was broken. And the day of the Lord, the coming restoration, the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus and Paul and Peter and John all talked about is about fixing our broken together. It's about restoring our relationship with God, restoring our relationship with the land, with each other, with our enemies, with foreign nations. Eugene Peterson says this, sin fragments us, separates us, and sentences us to solitary confinement. Gospel restores us, unites us, and sets us in community. Followers of Jesus individually and the church as a body must give the world a preview of that restoration that gets our togethers right. That's what we're moving toward. That's what we need to go and learn how to do. Robert Morgan tells a story about a a vacation Bible school class. There was this teacher who taught four and five-year-olds at the the VBS, and she always started class the same way. She would do that that illustration that maybe you've seen before where you say, uh, well, how's it go? This is the church. Uh, This is the steeple. You can do it with me if you if you know this one. And then open the door and see all the people. I don't know if I did the hand motions right. Maybe you have a better way of doing it. This was the steeple, but you know how that goes. And she would start the class every week with that. One week they had a visitor. It was a young boy uh, who was born with only one arm. 
And before the teacher could realize it, she started like she normally did. Okay, kids, let's do it. This is the church. This is the steeple. She got about halfway through and she realized, oh no, this boy is not going to be able to do this. He's, he's only got one arm. But she didn't have to worry because it didn't take long before the little girl sitting next to the little boy, she offered her hand and she reached over to his one hand and she said, it's okay. We can make the church together. Isn't that just it? Isn't that just, that sums it up. Love is the language that will speak in the new creation and we get to learn it now. I hope that we do. I hope that when people encounter you, they get a taste of Christ. They get a glimpse of that new restored creation where things are made right. People are not in relationships for themselves, but we're in it to glorify God and to live into what he created us to be. That's our call, not just this week, but that's our call every day to live, to show Christ, to love, and to lean into this new creation and to start figuring out what does that look like as a church to, to fix our broken together. It's kind of a weird thing for me to be saying when I'm not together with you in person. I'm here in this pink room, but, uh, but I'm, I'm with you, Tri-Valley. And I hope that we're with one another and with Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we long for your restoration. We pray that your kingdom will come. We want to see that day. We want to get there. We don't want to have to wait for it. And so, Lord, let us be uh, sharers of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, the salvation, the hope that we have in him. Let us be those who invite others into the kitchen and give them a taste of what is to come. Get them excited about how, oh, how so good it is, Lord. It's so good to be your people, to be in your love. Thank you for being a God of justice. Thank you for being a loving parent. We want to love you. We want to honor you. Thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. And even if we don't get it right, even like Israel, if we have to face consequences, we still have a word of hope and there's still restoration. And what you're going to do is for us and for your glory. God, um, we pray that this kingdom will come. Equip us to do that. This starting right now, let us love one another the way that Jesus showed us how. I pray this in his name. Amen.